0: Welcome to the Honest Field Guide podcast, a weekly show dedicated to winning in entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Ginger Birkenbuehl. I'm the CEO of Burt Creative, a leadership brand strategy and visual identity agency dedicated to helping scale brands and assist with their adaptability with the market. On my show, you get to eavesdrop in on intimate conversation with business leaders and inspired entrepreneurs designed to give you tips and strategies so your own business can thrive. Subscribe and join me each week for laughter, inspiration, and honest stories. everybody welcome back to my show the honest field guide podcast i am your host ginger berkenbuehl and i want to thank you so much for joining my show today you could be listening to any podcast in the world right now but you are choosing to listen to mine if you are a new listener to my show please subscribe to my show on apple spotify or search google for the honest field guide podcast and you can look for google Podcasts where you can listen to my show right from your browser from any device no subscription required share your podcast with your friends. The more people that hear my show, the better for my guests. And I would love it if you would leave a review of my show on Apple or Spotify podcasts. So listen, I am so honored today to bring on my show a spectacular spectacular American woman, American leader, a woman that has broken down so many walls and barriers for herself and for many, many, many other women in business. But before I introduce her as usual, I always like to share my own personal story. So When I started working professionally many years ago in corporate spaces, I remember discovering that the mom of one of my closest elementary school friends worked at Playboy. And I was so shocked to learn that the company was run by a woman. Now, my entire career, I've been aware of women's issues and the barriers we face on so many levels. And for me in particular, compound interest because I'm a Black woman. I mean, I'm a Black woman and there's a lot happening with me in corporate spaces. But when I thought about a woman running Playboy Enterprises, I thought, oh my goodness, what a coup. I loved the idea of a woman leading Playboy Enterprises. It was so brave to me. It was so bold. It was so amazing. And I thought, if a woman can do that, a woman can do anything. And I really can't even explain how I felt knowing that a woman was in charge of what at the time, in my mind, was a publication designed exclusively for men, by men. And a woman was in this man's world, calling all the shots, directing, publicly leading something important. And then I remember, I think it was around 2008, the woman running Playboy Enterprises announced she was resigning as CEO. I was completely heartbroken because back then I don't even think there were any American women CEOs doing anything of significance. And I was like, no, no, I want this to continue. I mean, it was so incredible. By now, you know, I'm talking about Christy Hefner and I want to read just a little bit about her so for 20 years chrissy hefner was chairman and ceo of playboy enterprises widely acclaimed for developing the strategy and leading the transformation of the company from a domestically focused publishing company to an international multimedia and lifestyle brand driven company when she left 40 percent of her executives were women and she was the longest serving female ceo of a publicly owned company Christy serves on the boards of the Center for American Progress, Action, Rush University Medical Center, and was previously the co-founder of the Chicago Network. Christy is also a business advisor and sponsor to a few women in business, executive women, including me. Christy, I want to welcome you to my show. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so glad. So what I love about my show, The Honest Field Guide Podcast, is I like to understand How did a person become formed to be so successful? So I always like to start very young. And I wanna understand a little bit about when you were a little girl, when you were growing up in Illinois, what were you like when you were little? Were you an introvert? Did you play sports? Did you make art? Did you love plants? I mean, what was going on with you when you were growing up when you were really little? And I'm basically asking about your super childhood, not your middle school years, not high school or college.
1: I think the through lines going back to when i was very young were one performing arts i got interested in that very early i remember organizing neighborhood kids to do a production of peter pan in which of course i played peter pan (laughs) Um, in fifth grade the grammar school i went to did a production all in french of sleeping beauty and i played sleeping beauty so i've always been drawn to the performing arts i was Also always drawn to sports. I ran track for a long while. I did different girls team sports. I bowled in a bowling league and we won the city championship junior girls one year. I played tennis from the time I was pretty young. I learned to ski when I was pretty young. So I was very active in terms of sports also. And then from, again, pretty young, very much influenced by my mother, I got interested in politics. So my mother was a Democratic poll judge almost every year when we lived in Wilmette. And she would take me canvassing, you know, door to door for candidates, you know, way before I was old enough to vote. So those are kind of themes that started pretty young.
0: Wow. And what about your grandparents? I mean, were they people that had an influence on you? Were they in your life? Did you all get together around the table and talk about politics since your mother was, you know, taking you around to canvas?
1: Um, I didn't talk much politics with my grandparents. My dad's parents lived in the Chicago area. They were devout Methodists, so I did sometimes go to church with them. I definitely saw them. They were lovely, lovely people, and my grandmother actually lived to be 101 and lived 21 years longer than her husband, and we were actually quite close. My mom's parents, who were immigrants, died when they were pretty young. They were in their 60s. So my mom was young and I was really young. So while I have fond memories of my mom's parents, they weren't in my life as long because sadly they didn't live as long. And they also lived in the Chicago area. My grandfather, Grandpa Williams, was a streetcar conductor. So I have memories of riding the streetcar with him. And my mom had a aunt and uncle who were farmers in Wisconsin. And for the years between when my mom and my dad separated and my mom remarried in the summer, she would take my brother and me up to the farm in Wisconsin. So when I was very young, I learned how to milk a cow and how to gather eggs from a nesting chicken, under a nesting chicken. I had a pet chicken. And I have also very fond memories of a farm
0: Wow, I really love that. I would not have imagined in a million years that rich experience. I mean, I've only known you as an you know, obviously as an adult woman, as I was an adult woman much, much later in life. I did not grow up at all with you. So understanding your experience in nature and farms and sports and theater, it's really beautiful. I mean, you know, for someone who grew up in the Chicago area, I mean, a lot of us grew up with those experiences because Chicago is a rich city with lots to do.
1: And I remember now a little older like high school age you know coming downtown to see theater i got to spend six summers at the national music camp in interlock in michigan which is by traverse city studying voice and drama and that was fantastic and performing so yes and years and years later i would serve on the board of the goodman theater which was a great deal of fun
0: i love that you know when i met your mom she's the sweetest woman she honors you so much it's so beautiful to see that kind of relationship Thank you. So I wanted to ask you also about your mom. So when you were growing up, did she work? I mean, what kind of woman figure did you see in your mother? What was happening with your mom outside of you canvassing with her politically?
1: Yeah, no, she didn't work outside the home when I was growing up. She had been a teacher before she had kids. I think once my brother and I were a little older, she would have liked to have gone back to work. But the person she was married to at the time didn't feel that it would look good for him if his wife worked. So She didn't. And only years later when she got the courage to leave him and I came back and worked at Playboy, she then went back to work initially in sales at a retail boutique concept that I was responsible for at Playboy and then ultimately in HR for many years at Playboy. But when I was growing up, she was a stay-at-home mom.
0: So did you have an idea when you were younger that was the idea that there was sort of a disapproval of her working. I mean, did you have an idea that was happening? How did that no. impact? You had no idea until later? No.
1: no, from my point of view, pretty much all of my friends' mothers were stay-at-home Okay, lovers. That was, you know, much more common statistically in her generation than it would be in mine or in yours. And only years later did I learn that she would have liked to have,
0: you know, worked sooner. She had a dream. She had dreams.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and honestly, she's of that generation that, While she was an excellent teacher and to this day is phenomenal with kids of almost every age, if she'd been born in a different time, she probably would have been an architect or a psychologist or something else. But at that time, she was born in 1926, you know, pretty much there were obvious exceptions, but pretty much even if you needed to work and wanted to work as a woman, you were certainly encouraged to either be a teacher, a nurse or a secretary.
0: Right, right. Interesting. Yeah, it's I mean, I always think to myself sometimes, how far have we come? I don't feel like we've come very far, but then I hear stories like this and I realize we've actually come a long way.
1: And I also I give her parents a lot of credit because my mom has four sisters. So there are five girls. As I mentioned, my grandfather was a streetcar conductor. His wife was a stay at home mother. They had very limited means. Yet all five girls went to college. I mean, they worked their way through college, but they really believed in education. They did not have this attitude of, you know, it's a waste for girls to go to college. All five girls studied music because they really had that kind of European traditional deep belief in education and the arts.
0: Wow. I mean, I love the educational space. I just know when I was a kid, going to college was non-negotiable. It wasn't even a discussion. It was just what we did. That's what we did. We all went to college. So just really quickly... Moving to middle school at all, you were going with your mom around canvassing and you were getting, you know, sort of an understanding of the political environment. I think that's wonderful. I never did that with my mom and we talked about politics, but I never did that. Did you have a sense when you were in middle school? Did you understand very clearly the difference between right and wrong at that point? Because I think about my own mom. My mom grew up with a depression era family. Her mom was in the depression. Her older siblings were in the depression. And they were a mixed race family. They lived in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on the white side of town. And my mother grew up in a very racist home with her own mixed race children. But she knew as the youngest of seven, the things that she saw in the home She knew they were wrong and she rejected these things. And she doesn't know why she was able to do this. She doesn't understand. She was so young, but she said, you know, Ginger, I just had a clear understanding that racism was wrong. When I saw my sister, for example, passing for white, and she walked down the street, across the street from my father, and she ignored him because he was black. He was a light-skinned black man. So when you were that age, did you have a already at that point have a strong sense of justice? Or is this something that started evolving as you were maturing.
1: Yeah, I think so. And to your point, I think that was influenced by my mom had very strong sense, you know, like when she was in college at the University of Illinois, she and my dad both went down there, you know, they were involved in picketing lunch counters that wouldn't seat black students or integrating the movie theater that forced black students to sit in the balcony. So she had very strong, small p political you know, values, and I grew up with that. And I remember debating in junior high, a fellow classmate around a Senate election. It was when Chuck Percy beat Paul Douglas and I was debating on behalf of Paul Douglas. I remember as a freshman in high school, writing a letter to the editor that got published in one of the Chicago papers against capital punishment. I started a newspaper with some other kids in high school that was a kind of anti-establishment, anti-war, independent newspaper. So I don't remember a time where I wasn't fairly interested in the greater world and whether laws or attitudes were, you know, right or wrong.
0: Wow. Yeah. And I love that because I was actually going to ask you in high school, where, you know, were you running the newspaper? And you just said that you did write articles. And so you must have been interested by high school in journalism, or what were you thinking about doing with your life? Is this also when you read Interlock, or were you at Interlock in when you were younger?
1: I was at Interlock in from the ages of eleven through fifteen, so oh, okay, starting in middle school and through early high school. I was interested in writing from early on. I actually won a writing contest, a fiction writing contest, when I was in grammar school, a national contest. I did do some writing in high school. I reviewed films and I did some writing. So yes, certainly by college, my strongest interests were journalism, law, and politics in terms of what areas I thought I would be interested in pursuing professions.
0: So around this time, I'm just curious, your father, Hugh Hefner, when did you actually understand the company that he built? Did you know that very early on, or was it a sit-down conversation, or did it like happened by, you know, hearing from other voices? Like what was going on when you started to become aware?
1: I don't remember a time not knowing because my mother was an avid reader and Playboy was one of the magazines that was in our home when I was growing up along with The New Yorker and Time and, you know, others. And I knew that that was the magazine that he created and that he published and I read it like I read the other magazines. So I knew the quality of the journalism and the interviews and its politics, which were again, like my mom's politics, pretty progressive for their generation. I mean, their politics were more like my generation's politics than their own. I used to comment on the fact that, you know, I was like the only kid I knew who didn't have the so-called generation gap around the kitchen table because whether the issue was drug law reform or reproductive rights or the war in Vietnam, both of my parents' attitudes were pretty similar to my generation's as opposed to their generation's.
0: So there was no fights at the dinner table then? (laughs) I mean, you were all sort of on the same page. I mean, you didn't you didn't have
1: debates or my stepfather, who was not a particularly good person and was a terrible husband and not a particularly good stepfather, but politically was very much in the same alignment of views. He was a lawyer. He ran at one point. I don't think he won for the school board. So, yeah, it was a consistently politically liberal family, with the exception of my dad's parents, particularly his dad, who was more of a kind of traditional Republican, because I remember when Watergate was going on, so obviously this is a little later, and my grandfather, who was a very moral man, was really deeply disappointed in the president and his lawlessness. And my attitude was, you know, have you not, like, studied your history? (laughs) Do you remember how he ran against Helen Gahane Douglas? I mean, what about this is surprising to you? But he, he was, and he was you know, one of those people who had believed in the president and therefore felt betrayed.
0: You know, I love this because I always have this idea. So I have three sons of my own. And you talk about a different generation. I don't know. There's there's just vastly different ways that they're coming up than I came up and definitely different than my mom. And I always have this idea that if only I could have sat around the table and talked to them all the time about politics and social justice, maybe they would have been better people. Like, you know what I mean? It's just like this vision I have of the perfect family is literally you know, sitting around the table talking politics and not being afraid to talk about politics and women's rights and sexual justice and money. Just like, why can't we talk about these things? And I just never got around to it with my kids. I don't know. And I feel like you had the opportunity to do that. It sounds like you talked about all kinds of things. Thinking about the times Watch the airplanes fly,
1: glowing in the night, floating through the sky. Kids were outside playing, mom will be home soon. I'm laughing and I'm crying, I don't feel anything. I want to hear,
0: and I want to say. So when you graduate from high school, you decided to go to college, right? I mean, what I'm trying to understand is, your father had this magnificent business and your first thought wasn't, I'm gonna go work for dad, I'm gonna go to college and I'm going to study English and American literature. What was happening right then? Like why wasn't the idea that as you know, a second generation Hefner that you would go in right away and take over the family business?
1: Well, first of all, I didn't have any interest in business at all. So okay. I never thought about going into any business. And secondly, I never thought about not going to college, never crossed my mind. And back then, you know, nobody took a gap year sometimes people do now, although more after college, before graduate school. So I mean, everybody from New Trier, where I graduated, you know, 98% of the graduates went on to a four-year college.
0: And you went to Brandeis University. So you got there. And what happened? You said, I'm going to study American literature and you chose to do that. You just, that's what you decided to do.
1: Well, I chose English as my major because there were no requirements for that as a major that were classes I didn't want to take. Okay, It was sort of that simple. I took a pretty broad liberal arts curriculum. You know, I took psychology and I took American studies and I took philosophy and I wish I'd taken more science in hindsight. I didn't take a lot of science and I'm sorry, I didn't. I actually do very well in math, which wound up holding me in good stead when I took over the company and it was in trouble. But, you know, English was just an easy thing to major in because the requirements to have it as your major were all courses I wanted to take. But I took a pretty broad array of classes. I started tutoring in Upward Bound, which is a program that helps students without the kind of educational advantages that I had, get into good colleges and then, you know, do well there. And I got recruited to do that in my freshman year by a guy who'd gotten into Brandeis through Upward Bound and in fact became my college boyfriend. And I lived with him for three years and remains a very dear friend. But I tutored English and math in a underprivileged area of Boston called South Boston. And then I created an expository writing program myself when I figured out that the kids were getting into good colleges, but were having trouble staying in because they'd never learned to write So I created this writing program that we got funded by OEO in Washington that I recruited tutors for and taught one summer. And I directed and acted in theater and sang in the chorus, back to the performing arts thing. I worked for political candidates, Michael Harrington, Father Drynan, And then because Paul was from South Boston, I had an interesting social life that toggled between kind of the traditional Brandeis, you know, go see a foreign film and going down to South Boston and shooting pool and drinking at the VFW post.
0: Oh my gosh, I love it. So I'm glad that you mentioned that you had a boyfriend because I was gonna ask you about what was happening socially with you in college because college is a, you know, for me anyway, it was a very transformative time where I got to know myself and meet amazing people. I still actually have friends from college and it taught me a lot about how to be prepared for adversity. Cause when I went to college, I was at the time, and I hate to date myself, but I was the only black student, the first black student in the art school where I went. And I didn't grow up in a homogenous environment. I grew up in High Park in Chicago, which is very diverse. I mean, I went to diverse schools, but still college was a whole nother level. When you went away to college, did you have a better opportunity to figure out who you were as Christy Hefner as an individual? Did you make friends that you still have today? It sounds like you went out and had a good time, which is great, but you also were building things. I'm thinking to myself, wow, you did a lot when you were in college. I mean, is that you believe or you might have started becoming a, a more fully formed person because you were out of the house, right? You were on your own, free, liberated. What was happening with you just as Christy Hefner was developing? Well, I mean, I think that hopefully
1: everybody Is growing during those years I mean went to college when I was 17 and graduated when I was 21 you know they're pretty formative years but I got a pretty good sense of who I was when I was in high school too so I think it was a period of growth and maturity and learning for sure but I don't think it was transformational in any
0: particular sense right so you were already pretty grounded
1: yeah in terms of friends one person i knew was also going to brandeis she had been at the national music camp so i had one friend when i started school i made one very close girlfriend who remained a very very close girlfriend until a few years ago when very sadly she died and then paul my boyfriend remains a very good friend and we had a circle of friends that came together because of Upward Bound and South Boston, and they remain friends. So when I go back for college reunions, which I do, and I did serve on the board of trustees for a while at Brandeis, and I chaired the budget and finance committee there. And so I stay connected to the school. But when I go back for reunions, Paul and I always hosted dinner one night just for the friends that we had sort of through South Boston and through Upward Bound. And then my, as I say, I had a, one girlfriend who wound up Going into the movie business and lived in L. A. Who I was very close to until she died.
0: I'm sorry to hear that. It sounds like you were and are a great friend. I just hear a lot of you know great friendships and a great person that people want to be around, which I think is amazing. I mean, that's testament to really you. I think, in my opinion. So, you finished college, and then what was your first job out of college?
1: I got a job for the Boston Phoenix, which was an alternative weekly like the Chicago Reader here or like the Village Voice. Uh, and I had, in my senior year, gotten into a seminar that Adrian Rich, the poet, had come to teach for just a semester, and it was just 12 students. You had to submit a writing sample and they only took a dozen students. So half the class were people who were poets and half the class were people who wrote prose. And I was in the prose half. So I spent that semester working on a piece about my experience as a woman in South Boston, where the society there was pretty divided by gender. So, you know, after dinner, the women went to the kitchen to talk and the men went into the living room to talk. you know, my interests were more the interests of the men in terms of politics and things, not kids. And so straddling that was the theme that I wrote this piece and worked on it for the semester. And then I submitted it and it got published in the Boston Phoenix. So that gave me kind of a foot in the door. And so I went back to them. I should say before that, because I thought I wanted to go into journalism. That's what I thought I wanted to do. And at the time, there was a columnist named Ellen Goodman, who wrote for the Boston Globe, who for me was very inspirational. So she had a column, she wrote very much in her own voice, but she wrote about big issues. So today, think Maureen Dowd of the New York Times. So because there had only been one journalism class offered at Brandeis, which I had taken, I wanted to get more experience before I tried to get a job. And Radcliffe offered, and I think still does, a very well-respected summer kind of publishing program. So I applied for that and I got accepted. So my plan was to go to that for the summer and then from there decide where I would apply to work as a journalist. And I came home to see my mom and my dad. By then my mom had left the bad stepfather and So I told my dad that I'd gotten accepted to this Radcliffe program and that was my plan. And he said to me, dude, I think I would learn more if I worked at the magazine for a summer as opposed to taking the Radcliffe course. And I thought about it and I thought, yeah, I think I probably would learn more if I actually was working with working editors and top writers. So I moved back that summer, lived with my mom, and commuted into the city and worked for Playboy magazine in different departments. I worked in research, I worked in editorial, I worked in art, I did some writing. And in, unquestionably, I learned more than I would have at Radcliffe. So I did that for the summer. And then I applied and got a job at the Boston Phoenix writing film reviews, and moved back to Boston. My editor was actually Janet Maslin, who would go on to be the film reviewer for the New York Times for many years. And so that year, I lived in Boston writing for the Boston Phoenix.
0: So then what happened between you leaving the paper and then going to work for Playboy Enterprises? Like, did he ask you to come work? Yeah.
1: So the first thing that happened was I realized that my vision of becoming the next Ellen Goodman was maybe not going to be realizable because there are not that many opportunities to have that kind of voice and to be able to write about important issues (laughs) with your own voice, which sounds obvious.
0: I I just love it.
1: At the time, I thought, (laughs) well, you know, I I could do this. And that the kind of work that I would do as a journalist for very many years was not actually that fulfilling for me. So then that led me to say, okay, well, then what do you want to do? And the answer to that was then I would like to pursue the parallel path that had always interested me, which was law and politics. And Yale had, and I think still has, a master's program that's a combination law degree and master's in public policy. So my plan was to apply to Yale and take that program. And then my aspiration was to wind up either in the U.S. Senate or on the Supreme Court. That's what I wanted to do.
0: I had no idea. I've never seen that. I did not know. That is incredible. I know i told that story to somebody and they said but there were no women on the supreme court and i said so you're like so what exactly yeah Yeah. i mean i have to just go back to one thing that you said though which i loved hearing you said that you weren't interested in sitting in the kitchen with the women talking about you know napkins and sheets and curtains and food you wanted to go in and have conversations to talk about politics and you know social justice with the men with their cigars i really love that and i think that One of the challenges that I think a lot of women have is that they're too afraid to go into those spaces like that. They'd rather stay with amongst themselves because it's safer and there's not as much of a challenge. But I love that you said that because, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit, Christy, but I do want to understand how you ended up creating Playboy Enterprises because I don't know that it was on the map until you showed up to turn it around like you were the turnaround person. But I want to just ask you, and I do want to go back to that, why do you think you had the courage or the instinct or response to not go with the women and to go talk to the men about business? Like, where does that come from? Is that something you were born with? Or did you cultivate it? Because so many women can't do that. They just struggle with it.
1: I can't answer the question. I assume, as is true in most things, like we're talking about, it's a combination of nature and nurture that, you know, there are qualities that we're born with and there are qualities that are developed because of how we were raised. So I'm assuming that that's true in this case. I had certainly the advantage of a mother who just, you know, believed that there was nothing I couldn't do. I had the advantage of a great education. I had the advantage of liking theater from early on, and I do think that instills a certain kind of confidence that's helpful. I had the advantage of being reasonably smart, and so, you know, I was like the kid that was always raising my hand. I was, you know, the kid that wanted to answer the questions in class. So I think all of that sort of combined to that, because I can't really ever remember a time when, as I say, like when we did Peter Pan, it never occurred to me to play Wendy.
0: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Let's just say. I, so. I just I just I love I love you so much because I feel like that's the way that my brain works too. It's confusing to some people. I've had conversations with my girlfriends about this. You know, why do you go there and not over here with us? And it's inexplicable. But back to the Supreme Court justice piece. So why did you not pursue this path? What happened that stopped you from that?
1: So my father had bought his home in Los Angeles and I went out to visit him toward the end of the year that I was working at the Phoenix when I decided I didn't want to stay in journalism because one of the things that my father had committed to when he and my mother divorced was that he would pay for all schooling for my brother and me. So the fact that I wanted to apply to Yale was certainly going to be relevant to him as well as I wanted to share that. So I went and stayed with him in L.A., to say, look, this is what I want to do. I would like to apply to Yale and hopefully get in. And this is why I want to go there. And he said, that sounds really terrific and exciting, and I'm 100% supportive. However, if you would like, you might find it interesting before you start graduate school to come back to Chicago and learn a little something about the company. And I thought he meant the publishing part of the company. And so I said, I'm now certain that I'm not gonna pursue a career in you know, journalism slash publishing. And he said, no, no, I, I mean the whole enterprises. Would it be interesting to you to move back to Chicago and just learn something about what the company is? And I had never thought about that before. My kind of rationale was I'm still very young. I didn't feel like if I didn't start graduate school right then it would be too late, I didn't feel that way. So I thought, well, would it be interesting for a year to do this completely other thing? And I thought, yeah, it kind of felt like a junior year abroad. Like, just take yourself out of your comfort zone. I knew nothing about business. I had no friends who went on to get an MBA. You know, this was a time of anti-establishment fever in America, especially on liberal liberal arts campuses. So the careers that people were interested in and pursued were you know law, medicine, teaching, engineering, journalism, you know, science, the arts. but like nobody said, oh, I want to go run a business, nobody. So it was very foreign to me and that's appealed to me. and at the same time Chicago was very familiar to me and I liked Chicago. so I thought, yeah, I'll go do that for a year. And I think my father's rationale was, this will give us a chance to spend time together because he and my mother split up when I was very young, divorced when I was still young. And I'd only seen him like three or four times a year all the years I was growing up. So I think we each had our reasons without either of us thinking that this was like, he's recruiting me to come build a career and someday take over the company. I had no thought about that. And I'm quite sure he had no thought about that.
0: That answers one of my questions that I was going to ask you then. I'm like, did he see a spark in you and say, she's amazing? Like, she's going to be great. Like, I just know that when I bring her here, it's going to be phenomenal. That doesn't sound like it was even part of the equation.
1: I mean, I think he recognized that, yeah, objectively, you know, I was smart. I mean, I made Phi Beta Kappa in my junior year. So it's not like he didn't appreciate that I was smart but I don't think it was part of a plan. And in hindsight, it was hugely advantageous to me to come into the company without any of the burden or pressure of being the heir apparent with just the notion that I was there to learn and work for a period of time. And I moved through different parts of the company and learned different parts of the company, did projects and the various things that I did. And it was much, much easier than had I come in under the mantle of, you know, second generation. Because I've become friends with a number of people who were in family-owned companies, Arthur Sulzberger and Donald Graham at the Washington Post Company. That's a hard road to, you know, know from the very first time you show up to work, everybody is thinking that, you know, you're the person that's going to, take over if you don't screw up. And I'm grateful in hindsight that that was not the dynamic.
0: So here's what I'm wondering, is it because of the time that maybe it wasn't dynamic? I mean, people didn't even consider you for a moment to take over the company? I mean, what is that well, kind of- I had no interest in it. You had no interest in the first no. place. and
1: actually the company had women executives and it had more women on the masthead of the magazine than probably any other magazine at the time. In fact, at that time, the women who were working in like copy editing and research at places like Time and Newsweek and the New York Times filed a lawsuit because women weren't being given opportunities in publishing outside of those very limited departments. I didn't have any interest in being in a corporation, being in a business. So I don't think it was anybody's lack of openness to a woman. I think it was, you know, wasn't anything that I was raising my hand for.
0: So when you were there the first year, when did it start changing for you in your mind? When did you start liking it or loving it i mean you said you tried a bunch of different things it sounds like almost a jack of all trades in the company learning the business learning the personalities understanding the workflow you know understanding like where the influencers are where the power structures are where decision makers are i mean at what point did you figure out that you liked it
1: i liked it from pretty early on or i wouldn't have stayed i liked the diversity of the businesses i liked the pretty high intellectual capital of the company, a lot of really smart people were there. It was definitely a place that attracted people who are almost all progressive in their political social values. So that was great because that was one of my kind of questions about business is that, you know, don't the people who go into business, aren't they the people that don't care about the environment or social justice or, you know, other things? And of course, that's not true. There are great people that are working in corporations who care deeply about those things, just like there are, you know, terrible people who are dentists and plumbers, you know, I mean, there's you no know, doesn't divide along your career. It's what kind of person you are. And and I found it intellectually interesting. I like the mix of creative and analytical, you know, in a way it sort of brought together the interest that I had. There's a journalism component. There's a legal component. There was a political component through both the editorial and the foundation. And so i found myself surprised at how much i liked it i still think in the early years i didn't assume i would stay there i still thought i would go back to my original thought that i would go to graduate school
0: so when you say the early years how many years are we talking when you say the early years like how many five years yeah, or? maybe
1: like that because it was i'd been there seven years when the company got in serious financial trouble as a result of having to sell its gaming licenses in the UK. And I'd been on the board for three years then. And I'd already started thinking about, I don't know, someday maybe maybe I would make my career here. My father had said publicly in different interviews when asked that, yes, he thought someday I would run the company. So at some point we sort of crossed that Rubicon. And then when the company got in trouble, it had a president who it had recruited from Knight Ritter. So my father was chairman CEO, but it had a president. And it was under that person that the company had diversified into a lot of businesses that it was not making money in, was really making all of its profits from the casino business in the UK. And so when that business went away, the company reported a $50 million loss. And it was, you know, kind of laid bare that company was on very shaky footing. The banks pulled the lines of credit, the stock price plummeted, morale was needless to say, you know, terrible. And the board was getting ready to fire the president and do a search to find another president. When I stepped forward and said, you know, if we do that, you know, the search will take six months and then it'll be another two or three months before the new person really has enough understanding of the company and enough trust from the people in the company to actually start making decisions and changes. And, you know, before you know it, almost a year is lost. I think there's an alternative. You could name me president and I would form an office of the president with the then CFO. And we would tomorrow, you know, start this turnaround.
0: Wow. I mean, I'm just trying to imagine. So when all this was happening, you already had multiple roles at the time. You're on the board. You know, what was the vibe like? I mean, you were walking around in the office, and where was the location at this time? Where were you physically? We was were, it at the...
1: Uh, on the corner of Michigan and Walton. Okay, so, the you know, you was were... It built as the Palmala Building and then became known as the Playboy Building all the years. Playboy had its headquarters there.
0: So you were walking around the office, and you're looking around, and you just mentioned morale was bad, and there was panic. The stock price was down. And, I mean, obviously, you said, I can be the one. I'm going to help turn the company around. Did you have any trepidation whatsoever. I mean, was there any fear or were you just like, was it all go for it like a train and just, I'm going to just fix it all. Like it just sounds like a really big, big job, but you'd already been there for five plus years. You'd already established a lot of incredible credibility. You were not walking in as the heir, you know, you got your chops.
1: That is true. It's also true that I was very wise to think about this office of the president structure with the CFO But it is equally true that I had no business raising my hand and thinking that at the age of 29, having never worked in another corporation without even an MBA, I should be given the charge to turn around a New York Stock Exchange publicly traded company. I mean, it was a classic WTF moment. I I
0: know. There's no basis,
1: logically, (laughs) in which I can look back and go, of course, it makes perfect sense that I thought I could do that. You know, it's a classic... You don't know what you don't know. On the other hand, I think it's also a classic learning about something that women need to do more of that statistically they don't do enough of, which is to assume that they have the potential to do things they haven't yet done. So we know from research that when there's a job posting and it says, you know, the job has these things you have to be able to do that on average, and I don't particularly like gender stereotyping because I just know the multifaceted nature of human beings does not lend itself neatly to being divided between men and women. But sometimes it's helpful if you stipulate that it's a generalization. But we know from research that, on average, women will not apply for a job if they haven't done more than three quarters of the requirements of what that new job Is responsible for. The reverse is true for men. If they've done roughly a quarter of it, they apply. And the difference in thinking is women think, well, if I haven't already done it, I shouldn't apply. And men think, well, I'll learn it. There's nothing that would stop me from having the potential of being able to do it. And when I talk to especially young women, I tell that story and I try and emphasize that, of course, there are such things as, you know, getting in, too deep on something that you clearly are not prepared or able to do, and that's a terrible situation. But in the main, it would be a really good thing if women had more confidence in, to use Cheryl Sandberg's phrase, in leaning in and saying, I could do that. And there's a wonderful T.S. Eliot line, if you're not in over your head, how do you know how tall you are?
0: Yeah, I love it. I'll just be honest. I, I feel like I'm always in over my head, and I just don't care. I just keep going anyway. I never feel like I am at the top of my game and operating perfectly all the time. And I feel like if I ever feel that way, then something's not right. (laughs) You know what I mean? Something's, I'm missing something or like there's something I haven't seen or I'm making about to make a horrible mistake. You know what I mean?
1: Well, at the very least, you're probably not still growing and that's not a good thing.
0: right? Right, right. When you did this and, you know, you sat at the desk day one, you're like, wow, you became the turnaround. So like, did you start seeing other things that were broken at that point? I mean, is that the point where you started realizing like, oh my gosh, we have to change this or we need to expand this. And by the way, there's other opportunities that Playboy Enterprises has to jump into and I'm going to start going down and and making those things happen. We actually need to look at rebranding. I mean, it really, to me, it seems like it would have turned into a magnificently large undertaking, you know, to turn the company around. I mean, I feel like you're a turnaround woman. And adding on to that, did you see any gaps in terms of who was actually working at the company at the time? Meaning, did you say, I need 10 more people to do this? And then did you hire all women? You know, what was that process like? Because these are lessons that women need to learn now. And by the way, we don't have enough women CEOs in the world. We just don't have enough women doing what you did and not being celebrated and championed and supported in the way that you were. That's the other thing that's missing too. But I mean, that's another conversation, but I do wanna understand sort of that process of how you were able to reform the entire organization. Well,
1: the initial focus was basically to save the company. And so that meant just a laser-like focus on cash because my father had 70% of the stock. I didn't have to worry about an unfriendly takeover And I didn't have to worry, therefore, about where the stock price was or even what profits were or were not, but I had to worry about cash. So we very quickly organized around that as the metric that drove everything. And we went from quarterly cash statements to weekly cash statements and a really rigorous and sense of urgency analysis of all of the businesses the company was in as to which ones, if they weren't successful, could be made successful, and if not, had to either be sold or closed. And if I actually had an MBA, I would say we rationalized the lines of business. And since I don't, I would say we dumped the losers. So we spent several years shedding businesses from hotels to a book club, from a record division, to movie production, to insurance business, to a modeling agency, to just a whole lot of businesses shrunk the corporate staff to try and put the decision making closer to the business units, did a mix of reorganizing and some hiring of new people. But we're really for years focused on just getting the company on solid financial footing in terms of its ability to produce cash and its balance sheet. Then in the mid 80s, my dad had a stroke and he fortunately recovered from it but it was really scary there was a period of time where like he couldn't read and you know couldn't find words and when he got better i think it really prompted him to think about how he was spending his time and one of the things that he recognized was he really did not want to be chairman ceo of a public company And so I became chairman CEO at the end of the 80s. And that's really what spurred the focus on strategy and growth, because that's really the job of the CEO. That's what a CEO does. And then everything flows from that, the culture you build, the team you build. But it starts with what's your strategy. And so that was really the period where we focused on okay, what's that intersection of our assets and market opportunities? And we chose a different path than had ever been taken by publishing companies previously, because previously, companies that had a successful newspaper or a successful magazine always grew by either buying or launching more publications. And we, after a lot of analysis, decided that our most leverageable asset was not that we knew how to publish a successful magazine but that we had this incredible brand and that was at a moment in time when the media landscape was changing dramatically and we're going from three networks to 50 networks and that created an opportunity in forming kind of destination networks organized around brands and so that we moved into tv and then obviously online and mobile and then licensing and everything kind of flowed from that.
0: So when your father was recovering and you became chairman and CEO, at that point, the company had been stabilized financially. Yeah. And so then you had some room to play and say, let's actually take this next level. Did you have full buy-in from him on all this? Or was he sort of really, I'm really pulling back, Christy, you know, bring this to life, bring it back to something different. What was that like?
1: I'd just say that with one... Big exception. We were always pretty aligned. He was an interesting person in terms of like technology. I mean, I remember when I was very, very young and he lived in Chicago and my brother and I were over there for like a birthday visit or something. And he took us and showed us a room where they had this amazing recording equipment that was not dissimilar from what you would find in a TV studio with the big old Betamax reel to reel tape recorders. And the whole thing had been set up to allow him to time shift. So if he wanted to watch a TV show, not at the time it aired on the network, but at a different time, he could have it recorded and then play it back, which sounds now like so obvious, but no one was doing that. That was before there was TiVo. That was before we had VCRs. That was before all of that. He just was always sort of interested in what technology represented. So the move from, as I called it, a railroad company to a transportation company, a publishing company to a multimedia company. He was all in on, and he loved the brand building. The one big argument we had when he was still CEO was I wanted to close the clubs at the same time we sold the hotels and resorts. And his argument back was, we still have a half a million people who pay to be members of the clubs, which is true. And nobody's tried to do anything recently to say, you know. Is this the best contemporary representation of what a Playboy club should be today in the, you know, in the 1980s versus in the 1960s? You know, are they in the right locations? Is it the right, you know, entertainment, whatever? So how do you know you can't make it work if nobody's tried? And it was hard to argue with that. So we made an agreement that we would completely re-envision what a club would look like, an open one. And we actually decided to do it in New York and figured, you know, no out-of-town tryout let's do it in new york if it works it works if it doesn't it doesn't i worked with rich melman who at the time had a number of entertainment venues that lettuce entertain you had as well as their restaurants we kind of completely re-envisioned the club we had male rabbits along with bunnies the bunnies were almost more costumey than just the traditional bunny costume so they'd be like a carmen miranda bunny or whatever we had a great entertainment program with great food and beverage and we opened it in new york and it just was past the time for nightclubs basically i mean the clubs i went to see in new york the year and a half to year before we opened to get a sense of what the present nightclub scene was they were like closed within a year of when we opened the playboy club it's just a tough business. And especially if you're trying to do something that's very capital intensive. So we did ultimately, you know, I was responsible for closing all the clubs all over the world. But other than that, my dad was very supportive of the strategies that we pursued.
0: So you ended up being right. (laughs) Yeah. In the end, (laughs) you could have saved a lot of money. But you know, you live and learn and it's your dad and you got to kind of at the end of the day. Okay, dad, we'll have to just, you know, we'll do we'll do it what you want, because this is your vision in the first place. This is in some ways. So I love it.
1: Well, we made an agreement and he kept it. He didn't say, well, let's try another one or let's give it more time. So, you know, I thought it was not an irrational way to do business.
0: Right. It's interesting. I've you know, done some studying over about, you know, McDonald's and how other companies have followed the McDonald's model from, you know, people that, you know, in the music business to the car companies and things like that. Is there any other company that you've seen that's looked at the model of Playboy that you think exists today? Like what other company has created something that looks like the Playboy Club model, but maybe isn't actually a club? Is there any company that you can think of that you've seen that you say to yourself, wow, you know, that's actually something that we started? I'm just kind of curious because the club business is tough.
1: We did go back into bricks and mortar. I watched with interest what was happening in Las Vegas because I knew how much my company had made from its gaming businesses in the UK. And at a certain point in Las Vegas, as a result of some visionaries there, Las Vegas went from being a market where everything else was kind of a loss leader to support the casino business to... A really multifaceted entertainment destination with just great restaurants and great entertainment and beautiful hotel rooms and every kind of brand at retail. And so, more than 50% of the revenues for the companies in Las Vegas started to come from non gaming. So, it was a much more varied business model mix. And I thought that was pretty interesting. So, I wound up doing the deal that took Playboy into Las Vegas in partnership with a company called The Palms. And then I had deals ready to do similar things that would be anchored by gaming so that the club was not like just the new, new thing, nightclub. It had this other kind of foundation to it as a business in London and in Mexico and in Macau. So we did go back into it in that way. And I think that model, I think, definitely works in all those places. The other aspect of what we did that I think has continued is, you know, we really, we were the first magazine to launch a website and we really approached it as a multi-revenue kind of world of Playboy online. So e-commerce and advertising and subscription and gaming, not a lot of social because when I left social media was sort of nascent, but I think that certainly had I stayed, that would have been a next big piece was to say, you know, how do you forge a community and what does that look like? you know, a lot of content. And I think clearly that kind of idea of content, context and commerce is, you know, very much the dominant model for what companies try and do successfully online. And then the last thing is, although I still think they've been slow, you know, one year I chaired the annual magazine conference and the theme that I took was magazines, colon, content and brands that live beyond their pages. I was trying to sort of push the industry in the same direction that we had gone to thinking multimedia, thinking of brands. And as I say, I don't think they do it as well as they could, but there's more of that for sure.
0: Well, I mean, there are some publications. The first one that comes to my mind is the New York Times. I mean, they had a newspaper, which, of course, you know, is not as robust as it used to be, obviously, but they have a really amazing subscription model, and now they have multiple arms of the subscription model. You know, they have New York Times travel, cooking, culture, so they're sort like of- they have a documentary um, film business. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. So it seems like they're moving strategically and intelligently and mindfully, but they're also building community as well, and they are using social media to do it. I don't know if they're super profitable, but I do know that it looks like a model that kind of is working a little bit. I mean, it is a tough business, Want to understand when you were doing all this work, Christy, with Playboy Enterprises, how did you stay grounded and focused? You know, because I just feel like there was so much happening and challenging enough in a space that is perception wise a man's environment with the magazine and all the things associated with the magazine, the clubs, as you mentioned, they stayed open. How did you make it work in a full on male dominated? culture and you were still steadfast in the trenches getting the work done? How did you stay focused?
1: Well, first of all, the culture at the company was not so male dominated. As I mentioned, there were women in executive positions before I was there. And you asked me about, you know, building up the team and noted that over 40% of my executives were women when I left. So It was actually a much more diverse team than I would argue almost any other, you know, publicly traded company would have been at the time. And like I was on the board of the MPA, when I went on the board, there were only two women out of 40 directors, Gertrude Crane from Crane's, who was a lovely woman but never spoke at meetings, and Pat Carbine, who was the publisher of Ms, who was fabulous. So I was in situations that were male dominated, but it wasn't actually the company I ran so much as the greater business world. In fact, I used to chuckle that when a professional services firm like a law firm or an auditing firm or a bank were coming to pitch for business, you just knew what had happened before they came. Somebody had said, Oh, my God, it's all white men, we have to find a woman to bring you know, their CEO is a woman, their CFO is a woman, their head of IR is a woman, and they would find some poor woman who nobody who was in a senior executive role had ever even met before and like drag her along to the meeting just to show that they had some woman in the room. So it was a male dominated business world, but the company I ran was actually extremely progressive and not just around gender, but for people who were openly gay, for people for whom English wasn't the first language. And that was true to the kind of legacy of my dad and honestly, his mother. I mean, that was just their sort of values. But in terms of staying grounded, you know, the early years are like a blur. I didn't take any vacation, you know. So you asked if I had trepidation. I didn't at the moment. I raised my hand. But, you know, I definitely remember times when I thought to myself, all of these people who work here and their families are dependent on my not screwing this up. And that was a heavy load. And I remember one point my father saying to me, I feel a little guilty. You know, I feel like I had this incredible party for all these years. And then you're you have to come in and clean up the next morning.
0: I said, Yeah, it does kind of feel like that. I love it. I love that you and your father had such a relationship like this where you could share a laugh, share a joke, you know, and still get the business done. I mean, that's just something that a lot of people wish they had, you know, they really, really do. I I love hearing your warmth around that mentoring conversation, you know, cultivation of you growing and becoming the woman that you are today, in part because of your father, not just your father, but in part because of him. I mean, I'm grateful for him, for God's sakes, because I'm like, I wouldn't be here talking to you if it weren't for the things that he taught you and what your mom taught you. I'm grateful for your parents. I really am. I, I know it sounds bizarre, but thank goodness they did a great job with you. But I feel like with all the things that were happening, I mean, playboy enterprises it's not an average company it's an iconic brand it's going to last forever it changed the trajectory of many many people authors women you know politicians just it's so gigantic i mean it's like huge brand the ability for you to like you know put something around the outside of you so that you could get the job done i mean it's not a normal publicly traded company. It's famous and popular. There needs to be more women doing big work like that today. We're not there. And I wonder sometimes women have a lot going on. You know, what are the strategies that you put in place? Is it because you had 40, 45% women around you that you were all sort of like in a kumbaya circle, like a force field protecting each other?
1: I don't think it was that. I do think I built a great culture and that was across the board. So I had Great people that I worked with, virtually all of whom I'm still in touch with and are friends with. We have get togethers of people that, you know, worked at Playboy, which is quite lovely. I had great girlfriends and I helped start different networks of women and have always believed in that. I, you know, had interests that I pursued that were outside of Playboy. You know, I spent years raising the $30 million to build the core center, HIV AIDS center in Chicago. served on the board of the aclu for 20 years i served on the board of the goodman i worked for political candidates from the beginning as soon as the company was stable i started to travel both for business and for fun and enjoyed that i wasn't married until i was in my 40s i never had kids so that unquestionably makes things easier although most of the women and men who worked for me were parents but i was not so i had, you know a lot of things going for me. I've always been i remained active. So I always had sports and outdoor things that I like to do that were fun. So, you know, the corollary to it being not the average company is, you know, I just got to meet and interact with a lot of really fascinating people, whether it was other people running media and entertainment companies or authors or, you know, politicians, you know, or artists or business leaders. So To me, you know, it was a high pressure job that only when I was out of could I really realize how the job is in some fundamental way worrying 24 seven about everybody else because that is what the job is. But it also was an incredibly fun gig, you know, that brought me into lots of fascinating places and meeting fascinating people.
0: I love that. It's fun. And so all the things you're describing were ways that you kept your energy up as well. So you didn't sort of pass out. I mean, in today's environment, a lot of women express exhaustion and tiredness. And like, this is a lot. And they sort of, you know, look for ways to escape. But it sounds like you were able to somehow find balances. And you had beautiful networks of people, which I think women need to keep in mind, they have to network. And I think in today's environment, especially, you know, the last couple of years, women have lost that connection to network. So women have. Yeah, it's hard to remember quarantining. Yes. I mean, like the interactions, the younger women are not necessarily getting to be mentored or advised by women like you because they can't find them because they're not in person. Black women in particular, you know, we have not necessarily been able to be in person to have people become allies for us. You know, I'm just sort of curious what you think needs to happen now. And and not something as simple as go back to the office, right? I mean, that's what everybody wants, go back to the office. But what are some ways that other women can network in this environment? What are some ways that white women can actually advocate better for Black women in business? Like, what are some of the things that we need to be doing to help each other? Because I sometimes think, based on what I see, we talk a good game, Christy, about, you know, wanting to help each other as women. But when it gets down to it, we sort of we kind of don't, we don't, you know? So what do you think we need to be doing? Cause you're all about that.
1: I am a believer in building networks. I didn't personally have a mentor, so I'm not usually an advocate for that. Although I think if you have a mentor, that's great, but everyone can build networks. And that is a wonderful way of both giving back and of having connections that can enrich your life and provide you, you know, multiple perspectives. And if you're committed to doing that, you're likely doing that by engaging with a variety of people in different settings. So, you know, whether it's through a political campaign or a nonprofit that you volunteered to be on the board of, or a trade association in your industry, there are always more opportunities than anyone can take advantage of to be out there meeting people. And I operate with the assumption that you can't know too many smart, interesting people. So I'm always open to meeting new people. One of my criteria for what companies and CEOs I work with is will I learn something new? So that forces me to be in unfamiliar surroundings. And one of the, I think, unfortunate things that a lot of people Fall into is to just stay in the familiar and the comfortable. So, you know, you go to a conference and there's concurrent sessions and you pick the one that's on the subject you know best as opposed to the one on a subject you don't know very much at all about. I think one does better choosing the subject that you don't know very much about than going and sitting in the breakout room of a topic that you already are pretty familiar with. So, a lot of it is just about, you know, how wide is the aperture and how much. Are you willing to reach out to different places? So I started going when I was still married to Black Ensemble Theater and really fell in love with the theater and with Jackie Taylor. And so when she asked me to co-chair the capital campaign to raise money so they could build a permanent theater, I did that. So I think if you put yourself in a position where you're meeting diverse people, women and men, then you're going to have opportunities to help them.
0: I love it. I love going to places where you're not comfortable or where you don't know anything. I think that gives a lot of opportunity, like you said, for growth. I do that instinctively. When I find myself naked in a room with people I've never met and I'm sort of scared on the inside, but I go for it anyway. And that's the only way I think makes sense. Christy. This has been such a beautiful conversation. I'm so honored that you agreed to talk to me on my podcast. And I just want to ask you a few things are kind of fast. And my first question is, what are you working on now? And are you going to be CEO of another company anytime soon?
1: I'm not going to be CEO again, being CEO 20 years is honestly more time than (laughs) one should do it. But I work with CEOs and I work as a board member to help companies grow and I like that a lot. It's kind of like having grandchildren. I love them, I would do anything for them but I give them back to their parents at night. So I'm very happy with that as this chapter.
0: Okay, and what are you listening to on your playlist right now musically?
1: My go-to Pandora station is Nora Jones.
0: Oh my gosh, I love Nora Jones. Her voice is so beautiful. Perfect, perfect. What book are you reading that's not a business book?
1: I like to alternate between fiction and nonfiction. So the last novel I finished was Chemistry Lessons, which I quite enjoyed. But now I'm reading the Michael Pollan book on how to change your mind, just delving into the research that's been done around psychedelics and how they're impacting people in terms of everything from on the one hand, depression, but on the other hand, sort of more of a sense of transcendence. So that's the book I'm reading now.
0: I've been reading a lot about mushrooms, and I find it fascinating <laughs> that we're really actually talking about this like this. Yeah. So what woman entrepreneur that is not a celebrity that you listen to, not someone super famous? I mean, I would say Christy Hafner, right? But who do you listen to that's not super well-known, that you trust and think is interesting, that you read about and you see her quotes and things like that?
1: Well, I have a very close friend who does two terrific podcasts she's certainly not unknown And that's jill Weinbanks. so jill was the one female prosecutor during watergate she became the first woman to be general counsel to the secretary of the army under carter she was the first solicitor general here in the state of illinois she headed up the american bar association for a while she's just had an amazing career she's a legal analyst for msnbc but she does two podcasts one is called IGen with a young man who's in college. And it's an intergenerational conversation about politics, which is great. And the other is called Sisters in Law. So she and three other women who are all lawyers talk about legal issues. I like those.
0: I love it. And last question is, if there was one thing you could do over again, and it could be business or anything, you know, something that you say, you know what, that's something that I kind of feel like I failed at and didn't do well, I would like to try that again. What would that one thing be?
1: Well, I'd probably have left Playboy earlier because I was thinking about it for years before I left and it would have given me a little more runway at this end. But on the other hand, this chapter's worked out quite well. So there's probably not a lot that I would say I want to do over for. I feel very fortunate.
0: I love it. Well, listen, Christy, thank you so much for joining me on the Honest Field Guide podcast. I really enjoyed this conversation. I'm Ginger. I'm Christy. (laughs) Thank you for joining my show and tune in next time. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carol. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only. Please do your own research.